Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna, and we are not alone today. Joining us today is Adira. Uh, how about you introduce yourself, Adira? Hi, uh, I'm Adira Slattery. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Adira Slattery. Uh, I'm here to talk about gay shit. Excellent. Yes. I, I've, it tells something about us, I don't know what, that it took us 20 episodes to have a guest on. They love the sound of their own voices. But um, I knew that I did not want to have just the three of us talking about this episode, which that tonight is going to be season two, episode 21 of Babylon 5, which is Divided Loyalties. And there's some gay shit here, and I figured... Let's bring somebody else on. And I put out a call on Twitter and Adira jumped right into my mentions. <laughs> Look, I like gay shit. You're definitely a champ for volunteering with like, what, like 12 hours notice? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Maybe 24. Like 24. Yeah, I put, <laughs> a, I put out the call on Monday. We record on Tuesday. Got to get that momentum going. Yeah. yeah. Let's get into this. All right, so we are going to be talking about only one episode tonight as part of our uh, slow trek to the end of season two, uh, where we are going through a lot of these wham episodes, as GMS calls them. So tonight we are talking about season two, episode 21, Divided Loyalties, written by J. Michael Straczynski and directed by Jesus Trevino. We open our episode with Delenn and Sheridan having a great little meet-cute about the newspaper. Uh, we get a little bit of information for how newspapers work in the 23rd century, including a little bit about how Delenn gets the human articles from Minbari so she can learn what other people think about Minbari. We then get a cut to the Mars colony, where we see a man running through the sewers there. He meets with another dude, claiming he's got the info. He gives this other contact a data crystal and tells him to get it to Babylon 5 and to tell them it's not safe. There's danger within. After the title, we then see Sheridan and Garibaldi in the men's room talking about bringing Talia into their little conspiracy of light. Talia and Ivanova are having what is a very cute date in the Zocalo. Ivanova is called away to CNC for a disturbance. As Ivanova leaves, Talia mentions needing to find a place as hers under maintenance, and Ivanova invites her to stay at her place. In CNC, Ivanova finds that there is a ship adrift with clear uh, weapons damage. There is one life form inside, and they have the ship brought in. There is one survivor, and when she's brought out unconscious, Garibaldi recognizes her. Lita Alexander! She was the first telepath assigned to Babylon 5. She was in the Gathering, which, uh... We'll watch eventually, we swear. I absolutely do not swear that. Maybe you're, maybe you're that much of a glutton for punishment, but I've been down that road and I know what horrors lurk at the end of it. It's the Christmas episode, we swear, listeners. 
Garibaldi recounts some of the history of the plot of the gathering and mentions that after Lita had scanned Akash, she was quickly recalled to Earth and that the process changed her. Lita wakes up in Medbay and demands to see Sheridan. She claims that someone here is a traitor and she can prove it. She explains that after she was recalled to Earth, she was constantly interrogated by the Psycor. After six months, she escaped and she's been trying to get to Vorlon space. While she was on Mars, she got involved with the Resistance there. She explains that there's a secret Psycor program, a sleeper cell, involving a personality buried under the sleeper's main active personality. A telepathic keyword is programmed in them, which will destroy the dominant personality and replace it with a sleeper. Lita believes someone on the command staff is involved under the codename Control. Wait, we've heard that before. Mm-hmm. Lita has the password and wants to dig out the spy. The command staff discusses this and has Lita placed in a holding cell for the time. Ivanova tells Sheridan that there's no way in hell she's going to agree to this. Delenn and Sheridan then meet in the garden, and Delenn sees that he is troubled. Sheridan expresses frustration and things can never calm down here. This leads to a great conversation about butts. But. But. I but. You but. He or she but. No, it's. Uh, uh, but, but. But. You sound like a motorboat. Motorbot. And the two of them have a nice moment where they touch hands. <laughs> Garibaldi is able to confirm that Lita's story checks out, and he believes that she's telling the truth. Sheridan decides to sleep on it. We hop over to Ivanova's quarters, where Talia is just getting out of the shower. The two discuss Lita. Talia mentions having worked with her before. Both of them are in internship. silk robes right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. They're, they're in silk robes. <laughs> this, is, yeah. this is about as subtle as a sledgehammer here, folks. Uh-huh. Also, the real honest-to-God water shower. Mm-hmm. In the immortal words of John Sheridan. Yeah. Talia mentions that Lita had interned with the Psycor for a short time, which raises Ivanova's suspicions. Ivanova mentions that she's not sure who she can trust anymore, and Talia admits that she shares this feeling, but she's decided to trust one person, Ivanova. Talia wakes in the middle of the night, reaching for Ivanova in the bed, but finding her missing. <laughs> Meanwhile, Lita is escorted to a Gay. new cell, but during... <laughs> there was only one bed. Yeah. <laughs> Lita They're just buddies. Sp- They're just really good friends who sleep in the same just bed. Just gals being pals. Uh, wearing silk nighties. <laughs> Ivanova. As, as one does with one's friends. Ivanova slash Talia is the uh, most popular Babylon 5 ship on AO3. Uh, it has the most numbers of stories with that tag. I didn't know that, and I'm extremely happy to hear that. Yeah. One of them, uh, Ivanova's a werewolf. Uh <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Whatever I thought you were going to say at the end of that sentence, werewolf was not it. Well, we are going to have an episode called Hour of the Wolf, so, you know, maybe it connects. It, does, wow. it doesn't. It doesn't. This blew my damn mind right there. Fandom is perfect. Zathras, I, please put a link... Please track this down and put a link to this in the show notes so I can find this and read it. Send me a DM on Twitter and I will send you the link to this fanfic, Sathras. Let me know. Reach out to me and I will get it to you. (laughs) Fucking amazing. Okay. Sorry, Justin. Carry on. 
Where was I here? Okay, there we go. Lita is escorted to a new cell in security, but during the transfer, the lights go out, and someone with a gloved hand shoots at the guards of the PPG. The two guards are wounded, and Lita goes on the run. These events lead to Sheridan admitting that he is leaning towards allowing the scan. Sheridan reasons to Ivana that they, they need to know that he will not allow a scan, but just the sending of the password. Meanwhile, in Delenn's quarters, Lita gives Delenn a call, asking for them to meet in the brown sector in an hour. Then Talia visits Ivanova's to pick up her things. She comments on Ivanova leaving in the middle of the night. Susan says she needed some air and admits that she's been hiding things. Talia tries to calm her and reminds her that people care about her and she is there for her. Delenn informs Sheridan about Lita's message. She wants to meet with all of the command staff at once. When Sheridan gets into his quarters, Ivanova is there. She explains that she can't have a telepath in her head. Ever. She is, in fact, a latent telepath herself, always staying ahead of the corp. She says that she's not even a P1. She can block a scan and knows what it's being done. But that's enough to get her in with the Psycor. The conversation stirs Sheridan's memory of the dream he had back on the alien abduction ship, of Ivanova asking if he knew who she was. Delenn then arranges the meeting with Lita, and they have the password sent to each of the command staff. Garibaldi is a real dick about the whole process, but everyone is pinged except Ivanova. They then send, scan the rest of the senior staff and go through as many officers as they can, but nothing turns up. Lita suggests that it could be Ivanova, and her evasion is only increasing her suspicions. Sheridan remarks that this is what Psycor wants. Ivanova finally relents and lets the ping happen. She's clean. And just as we think everything's out in the clear, Talia walks in. Lita sends the password, and it is revealed Talia is the sleeper. Instantly, like a switch being thrown, Talia grows aggressive, shooting at Lita and shouting, The core is mother. The core is father. They watch in horror as Talia is pulled away. After they try to figure out what to do. They can't let Talia go, but can't keep her. We then get a call back that caution recorded Talia's brainwaves. This is actually doesn't really figure into the rest of the show. It's just we get this flashback. Ivanova visits Talia in her quarters, and the new Talia tells her that the old Talia is gone. The new personality could only come out when she was asleep, and she says that she manipulated her and into getting close to Susan. Steeled, Ivanova says that the Talia she knew is dead and tells her goodbye. In a last scene, Lita visits Kosh in his quarters. She tells him she can't stay. She says she had to see him again before her ship leaves, and that she never told anyone what she found. The memory of Kosh would sing her to sleep when she was alone, when she was safe. She tells Kosh she wants to see him again, just one last time, and he reveals his true form to her. And that is a big hunk of an episode here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what do you, what part of that madness do you want to touch first? I mean, do you want to do the heavy stuff first or do you want to get the, the, the rest of it out of the way? I think this is an episode that like, we can all agree that uh, like, it's a good episode. Mm-hmm. I think it's, mm-hmm. I think my initial rewatch of it led me thinking that I wish it was two, like that it was a two-parter because there's a lot going on here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you want to know why that is? I'm going to guess it was probably because they, they oh, I, I know it was because uh, Talia's actress was leaving uh, the show. Yeah. But it, it just felt like, it's definitely something that felt like it could have been two episodes instead of one. Yeah. The Babylon 5 writers had 
uh, characters written for every single main cast part as like a second stringer to pull in, right? And so Lita was that for Talia. Which is funny because Talia was that for Lita, yep. too. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, they ping-ponged. <laughs> the uh, writers for Babylon 5 have like gone on the record. It's like, we were planning to make Talia and Ivanova a longer thing. And part of the flashback to Kosh having recorded Talia's personality is because that gave them the opportunity if the actor decided they wanted to come back, they could use Kosh having recorded that personality to restore mm-hmm. normal Talia so it wasn't scary evil Talia. And then maybe maybe there would be a kiss, maybe perhaps smooch and <laughs> we could all we could all dream. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree that this is a an action packed episode. There's a ton going on here. There's the good and the bad gay stuff. Mm-hmm. There's the Kosh stuff. There's the Ivanova's got some some action packed stuff going on here. There's the cute Delenn bit. Yeah. There's the the really good stuff with Delenn and Sheridan. Mm-hmm. Like the the motor butt scene stands out in my <laughs> mind. Yeah. Motor butt. As yes. One of my favorites in like yeah. this entire show. Yeah. yeah. I, congrats to Mira Ferlin for pulling that line off because that that is like the delivery of that. You could get that right once. You could get it wrong ninety nine times. It's the it's the best take you could have gotten of that. Yeah. 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 I don't think the first time I watched the show that I bought their relationship sort of thing until that scene. It was good. It's good shit. Yeah. I like the two of them. Uh, I agree that their, their courtship is a little bit wonky in the initial stages because Mm -hmm. it's hard to buy like how like bamboozled he is by her, like right (laughs) off the bat. It's like stars and eyes. Yeah. Anime heart thumping out of chest. Yeah, because he's he's a smitten kitten from like the first moment he sees her. Yeah, but this is the this is this episode definitely has some very good moments where you can see like that they have a good h- human connection. Yeah, um, and I think that comes down to the actors like they have good chemistry as actors and they're playing off each other really well. And this scene is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. Unlike other people who pretend who try at romance in this series, cough Sinclair, cough Sakai, uh, and who are like rabid dogs attempting to pretend to be humans. <laughs> I mean, I think that's like I think that's actually something that the show has like with especially the other couple that's in this episode. Like the slow burn is really good. Mm-hmm. I would have liked to see more of the Ivanova Italia stuff in the the build up, but like we get good scenes here, and it's like, and it doesn't feel like it's out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, Talia yeah. Ivanova is your your sort of classic uh, queer enemies to lovers sort of sort of shtick, where they're like nominally on the same side, but really don't like each other, and they have a number of of abrasive interactions, but are obviously like drawn to each other. And and I love that we really do get a kind of slow motion of them, you know, being closer and closer, especially we've had a couple of seasons or a couple of episodes in this season mm-hmm. that had some really nice moments with the two of them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Talia leaving her badge on the bar t- so that they can share a drink and talk and yeah, mm-hmm. like they definitely built that. Which slowly. also featured the Silk Nighty. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Bless the customers of the show. Diving into a lot of the queer stuff in the episode, it is so unfortunate the things that like the actresses and that the writers for the show have like come out and said of like, well, we wanted to do more, but we couldn't. <laughs> yeah. They wanted to film a kiss and then they couldn't. And the the editing of the bits with Talia and Ivanova remind me of a section in The Great Gatsby, right? So there's this section where the main character of The Great Gatsby fucks a man after riding in an elevator with him. Um, and you're like, I don't remember any gay sex in The Great Gatsby. And that's like, yeah, it's because it's shot in this in in textually in this very same way of like these empty spaces and this sort of floating between different things. And uh, like they, they did a lot of like in in the 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 Great Gatsby, there's a scene as as part of these sort of like quick jump cuts, which the excuse is that the main character is drunk where he's naked and just in his underwear and the man who he, he fucked um, <laughs> is sitting on his bed in his underwear uh, and they're looking at pictures because the man's a photographer. Uh, and it's very possible you're like, oh, maybe it's just drunken antics sort of thing. And it's like that was the sort of Talia reaching over and touching the side of the bed of where Ivanova was presumably sleep- sleeping. Like that's just that's just one step up more in explicitness, right? You You don't get any sort of indication of Ivanova's feelings about Talia in like a a declarative statement for a while. (laughs) Yeah. That until ceremonies of light and dark. Yeah. I didn't remember the name of the episode. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, there's a point where Ivanova talks about Talia. It's it's unfortunate. We could have had it all. Yes. We could have had it all, friends. Susan's my favorite character. And not just because we're both uh, bisexual Russian Jewish ladies. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, it's yeah, it's it's tough. As a side note, there, I really love that Susan Ivanova is by representation because that's super rare. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 not super textual here no. because <laughs> like 1996. Yeah, but you know, it's it's nice to it's nice to have at least something. Yeah, because it's not that common. And the show. I mean, I wonder. The show is equally mean to all of her male love interests as it is to her female one. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. like this might actually be like I, I don't know. We've had like two or three of Talia's exes, and like we've had dude who tries to like do like experiments on her, uh-huh. dude who ascends to godhood. Uh-huh. And Ivanova. And, like, I think Ivanova and Talia might have probably, like, the least tempestuous ending. <laughs> yeah, of of Talia's exes for sure, yeah. I want to talk about a relationship that Ivanova has in uh, a later bit. Uh, so go away, Justin. Activate gold channel one. All right. Ugh, are you talking about Marcus? Yeah, because he dies. He fucking he fucking eats it. <laughs> fucking beefs it. Uh, and she like no, keeps him around as like a fucking popsicle man. And it's just like <laughs> Uh and I this, this is why I have such a hard time going from season four to season five, because I hit that episode of season four and I'm just like I have too many emotions. I can't deal with this anymore. I, yeah. I have to go away now. Yeah, and it, yeah. It's not great. Yeah. And I love Marcus. Uh-huh. God damn it. Yeah, like like well, and he he buys it like for her too. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's 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 very interesting because Marcus and Ivanova, while being a uh, straight relationship, does have a lot of sort of hallmarks of the sort of things that we we see in more modern depictions of two queer people who happen to be opposite ends of the gender spectrum who end up in a relationship with each other right yeah that's that's absolutely the vibe i always get from them and that that makes both of ivanova's sort of central relationships her and another bi person which also very fucking interesting even though we don't have the sort of total confirmation like we do with talia uh marcus is just uh, too hot to be straight how could he not be yeah yeah right (laughs) (laughs) yeah all right, how do All right, we, we can bring how do we tell Justin? Oh, are we yeah. Just thumbs yeah. Come back from the void, Justin. Yeah. Wow, we, we have to we have to give guests about this morning here because we, we our, our first one and she is already uh really using the headphones. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I think that is I, I wanted to page back in the, the thread slightly was the degree to which this counts this is like a textual uh, mm, yes, relationship versus not. Oh, because because yeah. <laughs> we we had we had kind of a bit of a discussion that I think we sort of left for actually discussing in the episode about whether this counts as queer baiting or not. Yeah, um, because similar similar levels of representation often fall into that category, but I don't think that this does. Yeah, yeah, because this was JMS is very very clear. And not just like after the fact, like this isn't one. This isn't a case where like the creator is like, "Oh yeah, I I totally meant that." Mm-hmm. Ten years later, mm-hmm. to try and get credit for it, JMS is out there on alt dot rec dot sci fi dot b five nerds. Yeah. in nineteen ninety six or whatever, <laughs> fucking using that being bullshit. like, no, they're 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 gay. They're uh-huh. you know this is this is gay shit. Like. Mm-hmm. Fuck you! I don't care about your religious objections. They're they slept together. Yeah. Deal with it. Credit where credits due. That I mean, this was a time when like the gayest show on TV, Xena, wouldn't outright and say that that's what it was doing. Uh-huh. Not even the creators were allowed to like be like, well, of course they're fucking. Like, of course. Oh man. Like they oh, couldn't man, it must say have, it. Must have just so. On a scale of one to ten, how much do you think it burned JMS's shorts that DS9 had would do a, the would do a gay kiss three weeks later? Yeah, yes. I I, it, I was just about to bring that up. <laughs> yeah, it's it's literally nineteen days later. Holy oh, shit! That's so good. That's so Which, close. Wow. That makes me so happy. We have, so we have been you- tracking all of JMS's shitty comments about DS9. <laughs> In Lurker's Guide, and there's a lot of them. Wow. He makes so many bitchy, petty comments about DS9 on Lurker's Guide. Um, my favorite, personally, is the one where he uh, goes out of his way to point out that uh, DS9 only got a mention in the, uh, I forget Hugo's, what it was, some awards in the Hugos because uh, they dropped one of their episodes. If you look at the vote totals... <laughs> Actually, DS9 wouldn't have gotten the nomination if it weren't for us dropping our second episode. No big deal. Like, wow. Fuck off, man. 
<laughs> and this he, is why we hope that he never finds this podcast. Oh God, yeah, no. no! I mean, he—he he was a Twitter. He was a Twitter. He was like a—he was a dude who was on too much Twitter fifteen years before there was Twitter, <laughs> and he's yeah. still on too much Twitter. I mean, so I do actually want to like loop back on like the the like the actual topic of like yeah. queer. Yes, absolutely. I do think like like I think that in the uh, twenty five years since this episode has aired. Right. That, like, we obviously have, like, different standards of, like, what, as, like, queer people, we can see and, like, feel like this is good representation. Yeah. And in 1995, it's just simply, like, if you go look at, like, I just took a look on Wikipedia and it's, like, LGBT characters on television. And there's a page that's just 1970 to 2000. And it's like, if you can make, if it's small enough that you can make it on that page, I like, Ivanova isn't even listed. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it's, it's, you know, over on DS9, we have what writers were definitely intending with uh, Dr. Bashir and Garrick. And, you know, over on Xena as well. And just what you couldn't, what networks wouldn't allow. Mm-hmm. There's the, there, there's the definitely the difference between intention to do this but not having full creative control to do it and what we see like now in like you know especially in the last decade or so of authors knowing that there is a queer audience or people looking for those relationships winking and not delivering like Sherlock yeah like most media or supernatural yeah yeah Yeah. the interesting thing to me about queer baiting and thinking about stuff in specifically the like the the cultural consciousness that like art is made and thinking about like the intentionality of the creators is that like to me what what makes the Ivanova Talia relationship feel less queer baiting is sort of the the hallmarks that make it feel like that this is them going this is the most we can do we're sorry yeah. Watching the episode, it feels like there is more there that has been cut. It doesn't feel like that they're adding extra in to just sort of nudge you and go, uh, uh, uh. Like, I yeah. I don't think that the, because a lot of queer women wrote letters to the actress who played Ivanova after this episode, specifically being like, thank you. <laughs> I, I don't think they would have done that if this episode was like fully queer beating. Yeah. Queer, queer baiting in in that way. Is it queer representation at the same time? No, it's, 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 (laughs) it. Yeah. (laughs) Like it's, it's the, it's in that, it's in that realm of, you know, where they, where there was the intentionality behind the subtext, but the, but the intentionality was to make the thing canon, not just to tease the, audience it's the ungainy valley (laughs) (laughs) well and um gravity falls is another one that has Uh that falls into the same zone because you know there's you could make very good arguments that dipper and or mabel are trans Mm -hmm. or both you know you've got the two the two cops all sorts of stuff in there that um that they just weren't able to put in Mm mm-hmm yeah. But this is not a Gravity Falls podcast. No, though I did just recently, my spouse had never seen Gravity Falls, and... 
we watched through all of Gravity Falls, and they just finished up watching it's it. So good. Uh, like just a week or two ago. So I have a lot of Gravity Falls in the brain. So I, I'm no, picking up where you were putting down. Yeah, it's because it's 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 very interesting. Because like if, if a show did what if a show did now what DS9 was doing in the '90s, I would uh, spit on them, <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> And not yeah. and not in the fun horny way. Like <laughs> you definitely couldn't get away with Garrick and Bashir's thing today without provoking quite a bit of backlash, for sure. The thing is, is that you can, right? Supernatural and uh, Sherlock, and and all the all those sorts of shows in oh, recent years have have proved that you still can get away with all of that stuff. It's just. Now they're doing it for different reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The people making these science fiction shows in the 90s were, were doing it to try and show a like better vision of the future, right? And uh, still like retain all of that like realism, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not what those other shows are, are doing today, right? It's really fucking capitalist. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it, it's it's hooking people in with the promise of it, and it's just baiting people and like just stringing them along. Yeah, it, it always feels like kind of the spectrum of intentionality for me because. Yes, hundred percent. Yeah, there are things out there that have queer subtext to them where I don't think that it was intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, like I would. Jude is probably going to bash me over the head for this, but I would say Ooh. that probably at least the Lord of the Rings movies fall into mm. that category. I will uh, leave no, the I'm a hundred percent sure. I have a Lord of the Rings. I have a Tolkien podcast as well. <laughs> the, all the actors were kissing each other. What's wrong with you? Uh, my argument there is that it's, it was absolutely intentional. Mm. Like that they they made it. It was supposed to be a, more than a little bit gay. Yeah. Like that's my 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 pushback there is, I think, and modern Tolkien scholarship backs this up, more or less, that there's plenty of interpretations of, particularly Sam and Frodo's relationship. Yeah, they fuck. That, yeah, more or less. That that says that a a a, a relationship that there was more to that relationship than just friendship. And exactly what that kind of relationship was, what Tolkien was putting into that. It was fucking. Doesn't what? matter. Because what what was there, like what his intention putting into it was definitely something more than just we're bros. And that's where the movies. That's why I'm drawing the distinction yeah. between the books and the movies. Because mm-hmm. I think that the subtext is intentional in the books. And I think that the subtext is unintentional. I don't think that the movies, I think the movies do show the subtext because of the source material and because of the actors, but I don't think that it was. Really? You don't think PJ was like filming some of those scenes and was like, whoo, man, this is going to turn on so many people. And you you don't think. I don't think so. I mean, who doesn't want to fuck that fish? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'm sorry. Well, that's I, Guillermo de Tel- del Toro. Yeah, but Peter Jackson talked about how he agreed with Guillermo del Toro that the fish was super hot. Ah, okay. I was reading an article yeah, I, about it. I was not aware of that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who among us has not fantasized about a, a immortal fish man once or twice? I think about Doug Jones <laughs> all the time. In <laughs> well, forms. Yeah. <laughs> My final statement is I think we'll have to agree to disagree because I think Peter Jackson uh, 100%. All right. Intended to make those scenes horny. 
Oh, right. There was no oh, way there, there certain... that, that some of those scenes were intended to be like played straight. Cannot I can't get on board with that suggestion, personally speaking. All right, but there there are certainly things that fall into that category. Though. Yeah, but I, I I do take your point that yeah. And then there are the the things that fall into the category of you know the subtext is there because we wanted it to be there and thus we did the best we could versus the subtext is there because we wanted to be there because we wanted to tease the audience. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, hundred percent. For me, I think I'm I'm right there with you, and it boils down even simpler to simply whether the the creators are trying to do something out of like inclusiveness or exploitatively. Yeah. yeah. JMS, look, we, JMS is not <laughs> we, perfect. We shit on him a lot. But. Yeah, yeah fair. I mean, rightfully we shit on the him Cortez a lot. and any number of other dubious choices. Yeah, but his his. <laughs> The word of JMS going all the way back to the time when this came out, when it was not at all, like, advantageous for him to be, you know, speaking as plainly as he does on, uh, on the subject, made it very clear that this was a choice, uh, a, an inclusive choice. He was, he wanted to include these storylines because he felt there was nothing wrong with it, and he wanted to show that this was a thing that was acceptable and fine and what whatever and what have you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes it feel good to watch. It doesn't feel e- exploitative or commercial. Whereas John Locke feels like they want people to keep it's waiting for those yeah. two to fuck. Mm-hmm. When, but also they don't want them to fuck because then it'll alienate all of the conservative housewives that watch the show. Exactly. Queen of England, if you listen to this podcast, uh, go fuck yourself. Um, <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah, uh, we do not want monarchs, emperors. That includes you, Londo in the future. And I'm sorry, Veer, that will also include future you. Yeah, poor Veer. Um, <laughs> okay, so tangent, I don't think we ever canonically know much about Veer's emperorhood. I hope that he shows up yeah, first no, day I- and goes, we're abolishing it. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's always been my my personal dream yeah. that he he becomes emperor and then like does drastic reforms immediately because he's a good boy. There is something that I want to talk about pulling back to the episode, uh, which yeah. is about yes. the parallel of uh, telepathy and queerness. Right. So uh, uh, the episode features a coming out scene. Right where a character is concerned about someone accepting them for uh, a secret they've been hiding about Mm -hmm. a fact about themselves that makes them different from the rest of society, right? All of Ivanova's, like, play-by-play talking to Sheridan is just... is just... coming out to someone as 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 gay, as gay. like like it's <laughs> yeah it's, absolutely yeah. it's super interesting because when you look at the other sorts of ways that they talk about telepathy in the show uh the other metaphor that the psi stuff is used for is fascism mm-hmm. and even even not even That's... explicitly metaphor it's 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 fascist in many points and and it is it is an interesting juxtaposition to be positioning one central aspect of your your story to be talking about both like deviant people trying to like forge their own path within society and having to hide aspects of themselves and a dominant political group that is oppressing people right 
Yeah. And it brings up a lot of interesting topics about the concepts in in various struggles and issues with the different groups have with uh, queer assimilation. It, it brings up thoughts about the concept of passing in the trans community. It like <laughs> it is it is just it is just so much. And also on top of it, telepaths are described in the show as having the best sex ever. Um, <laughs> so it is a sex thing. <laughs> You really gonna make me go back and remember that goddamn episode? I will note that in this in the notes for this uh episode, I have a something line written, something 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 when telepaths make love something uh, something. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like so so the concept of telepathy and a sex thing is already in there, right? Mm-hmm. The whole thing wouldn't be so bad if it weren't accompanied by the awful porno music back. Yes. Yeah, the season one co- uh, and and <laughs> and have been um, revolving around Talia fucking her mentor. Yeah, poor Talia. Oh God, I just poor Talia. Yeah, T- Talia also brings up instances of abuse and and grooming within queer communities. Mm-hmm. Talia brings up uh, instances of every single queer character on the show basically is a telepath. Um, I mean, like in the first like real scene in and and Besker's pretty gay. He uh yeah I I mean he's he's, he feels queer coded to me. Interesting. I, yeah, I've definitely got that gay villain vibes. I, I'm on board with that. I just go just going off the like the like Talia specifically like in the first conversation that Talia and Ivanova have back like in the bar back in Midnight on the Firing Line. Talia says specifically like, "I don't feel like a victim" when she's referring to the Psychor, and as whose response? I can't remember exactly what her response is like. Like, of course you would. Yeah. I think she replies with something like, that's the real tragedy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is a killer line for yeah. the yeah. first episode of the show. Yeah. Really, the, the the way that humans treat telepaths is either you can either assimilate, uh-huh. go live, you know, or separate yourself from society, or forcefully conform yourself through medical treatments. Um, and lose that part of you and gosh if that's not really queer i don't know what it yeah, is. yeah the the medicalization aspect of it too brings up a lot of different things that are just like holy shit oh yeah yeah pulls into things like conversion therapy and <laughs> it is interesting because like at, at the same time in the general sort of arc of the show a lot of the shows like like big hero moments come from telepathic powers um especially a couple mm-hmm. moments later on or they come from fucking death incarnate uh and she's a telepath so ivanova <laughs> she's the best <laughs> yeah i just i just there's just so there's much so, it's a lot it's a lot yeah <laughs> like just just like there's also the issue of like when you're framing Something that is a metaphor for a minority as yeah. something with power to be feared. Uh-huh. Um, hi, I'm an X-Men fan. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, and so, like, you know, it's a, you know, that's a fraught, you know, it can become a fraught metaphor. But, I mean, it's like, it's also like, you know, fiction isn't meant to be a perfect one-to-one metaphor. And 
I'm sure there, it's been 25 years. I'm sure you could find all sorts of like scholarship on the on psychics and the psychor uh, throughout the internet. Yeah. To that point, with writing on the internet and things like that, I went searching to see, oh, what are what 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 have other like people said about this relationship and like queer scholarship and things like that, and there isn't that much. <laughs> It is very interesting to me. I think part of that, to me, comes down on the fact that it's not good representation. Yeah, there's not there's not a lot to go on. Yeah, like there's there's one relationship uh, uh, focused episode. Well, and there's one thing that I've been I think I've been dodging around this entire time, which. The first time I watched this episode, because my, my process generally, I watch it in like a marathon sure, and sure. then I go back and like actually watch it to review it for for the show here, um, is that the first time I did it, it was a gut instinct, but I'm like, ooh, this feels uh, very bury your gaze. It's so bury your gaze. And like if they wanted to write her off, you didn't have to literally destroy her personality and says there was no way for her to ever come back. <laughs> so this and then this is where the nerds are all like push up the glasses and well, they didn't actually kill her. They, yeah. They, yeah. They it's, erased her mind, but they have a backup so they can bring her no, shut the fuck up. It's called ego it's a, death for a reason. Like <laughs> Yeah. And it's It's a barrier gaze. It absolutely is. And yeah. it's specifically the the like lesbian version of it where it is where it is uh, a relationship that has finally been consummated. And now, because you have achieved any sort of happiness, and like the two of them talk about how they can trust each other, and like now that you've achieved this sort of stability, it is time to pull the rug out from under you. Fuck you, you're not allowed to be happy. In the 90s, that got fan letters written. And today, it makes people stop watching the 100. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know how much you know about the queer relationship central in the 100, but it was it was a big deal. <laughs> yeah. It got me to stop watching the show. There we go. <laughs> I mean, and yeah, and like this is like, and this is a thing that happens. Or I mean, that was, it's, it's a common trip. We will see it, a much more prominent version of this is going to happen three or four years later down the road here with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh -huh. Um, that's, I think, I think that's like possible. I, I think that might be the most visible version of that trope in like pop culture consciousness. Yeah. Fuck Joss Whedon. Yeah. Fuck Joss Whedon. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think like it's, I understand that, that like the, that what they did was they wanted to have a way to like it. Like JMS always talks about his trap doors with characters, mm -hmm. you know, despite the fact that he doesn't seem to know that other people are involved with making his show. He makes, he makes provisions for it sometimes, but like, he's like, Oh, I have this thing to possibly bring her back with. And I mean, frankly, uh, I can't remember the actor's name on Andrea Thompson. That sounds right. Yeah. yeah. Good on her for like realizing, like i get like, I I'm not getting a lot of good role. I'm not getting a lot of good episodes of the show. Sure, I'll go bail for NYPD Blue. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Like I I don't, you know, I'm not going to fault her for a decision to leave the show. No. Yeah. Yeah. And I, from what I understand, the whole control thing was something that was meant to play out much more slowly. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. with a different character. Yeah, it was originally like the original XO of B5 from The Gathering, right? So it was 
if I am recalling correctly, there was a rig- there was another XO, and yeah. it would have been who also grew illicit coffee. Yeah, and it would have been, and it was going to be that character, and right, yeah. it was so it was like the Ivanova to to uh, Ivanova would have been the Corwin to this character, and. Mm-hmm that character was the one that would ultimately have been control. Uh, but they left after the gathering and they didn't want to use Ivanova for some reason. They didn't want it to be Ivanova. So they had to go find somewhere else and then she was going to leave. And yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. well, and then it was, you know, the seeds were planted in other episodes, including, mm-hmm. you know, the, the bit with the, the scene with Abbott, the vicar, yeah. You know, I would have loved to see how that would have actually played out if they'd had the chance to if, if she hadn't left the show uh-huh. and she'd actually been given good episodes. Yeah. We've got two seasons of Talia stuff, and a lot of it is her being a victim. So honestly uh, yeah. unfortunately it's like the episode like that like her last episode is again another example of that where like it's not her clasping her forehead and, and doing a counselor Troy. <laughs> But I mean, it's still an episode where she is like the victim. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's not a particularly dignified end for a character that's who whose episodes when she does get airtime, it, it tends to be about an ex who comes to the station to uh, ruin her day. So and it's so it's so unfortunate because Lita got some decent episodes. Yeah. It's like if they just written Talia like they wrote Lita, it would have been fine. And like the Andrew Thompson probably would have stayed with the show. And the role of a commercial telepath lends itself to mingling with a lot of different sorts of people that can mm-hmm. lead to a lot of interesting stories. And it's like, how can you just keep reusing this over and over, you fucking hack? <laughs> yeah. Well, and like she has some good episodes. The episodes, the episode with the uh, the murder that gets mind wiped. We talked about how mm-hmm. good that episode was with Talia where she's struggling with the burden of being the the implement of justice's actions there and how it's terrifyingly garbage that she's being used this way m- more or less against her will and yeah. how Thompson delivers a really good performance in that episode there's so many there's so many good things to say about commercial telepaths too yeah. and like the awful position that they're in uh-huh. because you know they're civilians who are under the thumb of a fascist organization um and they're essentially like accountants and stuff and like you know notaries but in a sex work way yeah right but it's I like I didn't even consider that before um <laughs> But it's it's like it's like if you're a notary, but then you also have to show up and scan serial killers and enter their minds. Like it's awful that a commercial telepath has to do. Well, yeah, this. it's like a notary that at any time could be asked to do anything from hand sketch a murder scene or like I don't know interview a. Uh, a pedophile or like do any awful horrible thing because your boss says so like yeah. can you imagine right being a only more so like it really is like a cross between a a notary and like a really dubious gross kind of prostitution yep 
Yeah. And it's 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 really a shame that we got like exactly one episode that explored that. Mm-hmm. And instead we got to hear about the Talia's multiple grooming exes. And there's and you know, there's so many episodes over the last, you know, season and the third season and two quarters that where they had an opportunity to bring in Talia and like have her contribute to the plot. Mm-hmm. Um where I we- mean, for instance, where for where where all the honor lies, which I mean, that is an awful episode. I mean, that's Peter David, so I think I'll like I'll, I'll just excuse that by like saying a hack wrote that episode. <laughs> yeah, but like the entire episode could have been solved if Talia had just scanned Sheridan. Yeah, mm-hmm. and been like, you know, okay, well, this isn't like legally binding, binding, but I'm a neutral person, and we can like, you know, get some more information here. Yeah, yeah, or and the whole like, strike episode, like. Why was there not a commercial telepath involved in a strike? Yeah. Like, right. And like that Talia could have been there with Orenzento being like, okay, this guy like is actually lying through his teeth. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know. Anyway, there plenty of, I think we, we are all in agreement that Talia was not well deployed and it makes sense that Andrea Thompson would go on to greener pastures. Yeah. Uh, plus, and I, I don't know the exact timing of this. I'm going to look it up because now I'm curious. What, are you looking up when, when she and Jerry Doyle divorced? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, nailed it. She divorced Jerry Doyle in 1997. <laughs> so, like, okay, 18 well, months after this episode. Yep. Yeah. So that was probably in the works. Yeah. 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 Can't blame her for that one either. It's a good episode. There's a lot to dig in. And I think it's like... And this is like a culmination of a lot of stuff. We get Earth conspiracy shit. We get more shit that the Psycor is doing. I and am... we get we get um, something else that we haven't really talked about. But with the Delenn bits, I love the newspaper scene because it actually very subtly emphasizes how cut off she is at this moment from Minbar. Yeah, yeah. That she she plays it off as a joke of you know, well you know sometimes the Earth news tells me what I need to know about Minbar. Before I actually learn it, but that's actually happening to her. Like she's not like she's been completely cut off at this point and just like isolated from her own people. And it's it's a a subtle little bit that I really love. And Delenn at the end of season two breaks my heart. Yeah. All right. So Adira, I want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, We would love to have you back in the future. Yeah, totally listeners uh thank you for listening and join us next time we are continuing our trickle down towards the end of season two you can join us next time for episode 20 uh which is gonna be the long twilight struggle until next time be seeing you the babylon project is an independent production all views expressed on the show are our own Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license.
end of recording.